series we're calling The Road to the Resurrection. And, you know, the, when we talk about Easter, we're talking about the brightest day in the history of uh, humanity, really. The reason that we have hope, because Jesus rose from the dead. But in order to get to that bright day, Jesus had to go through many dark days on the road to resurrection. So we've been looking at some of those uh, dark days and how they give us perspective. Sometimes it is the darkness that makes the light shine the most impressively. And so today we're going to look at at, uh, Jesus being turned over and and the, the sort of fake trial he had that led to him being consigned to the cross. It's it's Mark chapter 15. It's printed in your programs if you'd like to follow along. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus up and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, said Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him again, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? Pilate asked. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flocked and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word for God's children this morning. So we're about to celebrate Easter. Seven days from now we'll be in in church celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But we've got to remember that in order for Jesus to rise from the dead, first he had to be crucified. For him to be vindicated, first he had to face the accusation. And so Jesus, in Jesus' journey toward the cross to save all of humanity, I think he faces some of the very worst of humanity. And, uh, you know, I think as we go through life, we can get somewhat jaded about how bad things can be, how bad people can be, uh, you know, and, and you just, just all you have to do is turn on the news. I remember a couple weeks ago there was a story in Jersey City that, was, that provoked a lot of outrage. An 80-year-old woman was walking to church one Sunday morning, and she lived just a couple blocks from, from the little church she had gone to all her life. But as she was walking there, someone came up and hit her on the head and stole her purse. And so here's this little old lady doing, doing her Sunday duty, just going to church and, and on Sunday morning, and she gets mugged. And I, I remember this caused great outrage in the town. How could anybody take advantage of a 
innocent woman on a circumstance like that. So, so you hear those stories and there's something about them that just makes our blood boil. But then, uh, you know, there's also stories you just turn on the news and they're stories of public corruption and public crime. And depending on what kind of crimes outrage you, you can pick a news channel that will get you good and angry and make you really yell at the, the TV because there's, there's a whole smorgasbord of corruption for all of us to be angry about. So there's all that public stuff that's going on in the world as we know it, but I think what's more troubling for most of us most of the time is when we come up against real corruption or, or real difficulties in our personal life. When we hear about uh, something happening to a family member or, or when a friend or family member does something to us and we're, we're face to face with the fact that even someone we thought we could trust or someone we thought we could depend on is actually turning out not to be dependable or is taking advantage of that trust. And if you've ever gone through something like that with a family member or a close friend, you know that that's even more devastating. But all of this points us to the thing that I think really will grab most of our attention is when we personally do something and all of a sudden we discover something inside of ourselves that shocks us of what we're capable of and we realize maybe we've hurt somebody, realize we've squandered the, some of the gifts we've been given because of something that we've done. When we see ourselves on a downward spiral and we don't know how we're going to climb out of it. But, you know, facing public corruption, facing people's flaws, that's part of, part of life, but it was part of Jesus' life in an even more extreme sense, especially as he was on the road to the resurrection, for him to get there, he had to face the worst of humanity. And uh, last week we looked at part of that. We saw the betrayal and the abandonment by his closest friends. But today we're going to look at how, how that broadened out and brought him to the cross. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple different aspects of this. First, I want to see how, how sometimes the struggle for the status quo will bring out the worst in us. So what happened was, last week we saw this where Jesus' friends, Judas, uh, turned Jesus over to the Jewish authorities, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin. And so all of these folks... Uh, had Jesus in their custody and they had to decide what to do with him. And so they decided to make a plan to have Jesus executed by the Roman authorities. You've got to understand, to just get the context of this, in the first century, the people of Israel were not a free nation. They were under the rule. They were part of the Roman Empire. They were essentially a, a conquered and humiliated people. Uh, and, but the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they represented the people who were the kings of the slaves, as it were, the kings of the conquered. And so they, they were the local authorities. Because if you remember your history, the Roman Empire at this, at this phase in history covered the whole known world. They, the Romans fancied themselves as having an empire that, that covered the whole world. But it was a very diffuse empire and so they didn't they didn't rule with an iron fist instead they 
They just told people, well, hey, we, we can come in here and we can take this place over, or if you'll just pay your taxes to us, let our governor rule this place and accept an occupying army, you can basically govern yourselves. And so that there was a circumstance of the Israelites in that day and age. And so the, the Sanhedrin was empowered to manage misdemeanor type crimes and minor things, but capital crimes could only be administered by the Roman governor, by Pilate. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate and they accuse him of the very thing that, the one thing that was a capital crime in his point of view, which was insurrection, that he was plotting to overthrow the Roman rulers. And they wanted to force Pilate into a situation where he had to give him the death penalty. But think about this situation for a second. Here, we have these people who are the leaders of a conquered people, the most powerful of the vanquished, the kings of the slaves, as it were. And they were more concerned about maintaining their humiliating position as being those who were subservient to Rome than they were open to the possibility of being set free. And that's what Jesus came to do. That was the whole point of Jesus, Jesus uh, life and ministry he came as the messiah to restore israel to glory to restore israel to power and here here he is the very people who claimed that that's what they were looking for and rather than them accepting him and embracing him those those very people wanted to turn him in to be executed and so it strikes me they're like so many people i've known over the years are like me sometimes where you're living basically an unhappy, frustrating life where you're not reaching your potential and someone offers you a way out. And rather than accepting the invitation of, of a new way, you say, no, I'm just comfortable right here in my, my messy, mediocre situation. You know, you're living a job that's just sucking the life out of you. And someone says, well, why don't you consider changing careers or, or finding a new job? And you say, no, 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 this is predictable and this is comfortable for me, so I want to complain about this job, and I know it's killing me, but I don't want to change. You know, anybody, some of you know people like that. Uh, or, 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 you know, even, even more severely, sometimes people get caught in a lifestyle or making lifestyle choices that are killing them. And, and you say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You can get over your addiction. You can get over your bad habits. You can, you can go in a different direction. And... And, and even though the path is laid out for them, they don't want to because they're comfortable right in the lifestyle they're in, even though it's diminishing them, even though it's shortening their life, even though it's keeping them from being what they want to be. You know, because what all of us do, all of us tend to do this, we hold on to the known, even if it's pathetic, even if it's lame, even if it's killing us, because we're afraid of the unknown. We hold on to what's familiar because we can't imagine glory. And see, when Jesus comes into our life, what Jesus wants for you and for me is for us to become everything he's created to be. He doesn't want us stuck in, in, in the, the problems of our life. He wants to redeem our life and he wants us to meet our full potential. But we say, no thanks. I'd rather just sit here and complain about the situation that I've got than seek something new. C.S. Lewis put the human condition, described the human condition this way. He said, we're like ignorant children 
who prefer to go on making mud pies in the slums because we have no idea what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The chief priests and the elders didn't see Jesus as someone who would restore their nation to glory and restore Israel to its prominence and reveal the glory of Yahweh. They saw Jesus as someone who might threaten their pathetic position as being kings of the slaves. And in our lives and the lives of those around us, sometimes we see that the, the real threat that Jesus has, the threat of change, the threat of transformation, the very thing that we want to avoid is, is us actually experiencing the full potential that he has created for us and the, and the kind of life that he has, has designed for us. So we can't let go because we hold on to the status quo. And like the, the uh, chief priests and elders of the law, that actually brings out the worst in us. But if there's only one thing worse than holding on to the status quo, it's the survival instinct when we hold on to po power. So this guy Pilate, who figures prominently in the New Testament, he was a Roman governor in, in Palestine. He, was, he didn't want to be in Israel because that was sort of one of these far-flung outposts. I'm, I'm sure he wanted to be back in Rome where the action was, but he was sent out to Jerusalem to deal with this difficult province. And uh, he was an appointed bureaucrat. And his job was mainly to keep the peace. No one in Rome cared too much about Israel. They just didn't want another rebellion from these people because the people in, of Israel, the nation of Israel, had, had uh, caused a lot of problems over the years. And so Pilate was heavily, heavily inclined just to do whatever it took to keep the people from from rebelling, and that's why he worked so closely with the Sanhedrin. That's why he was so responsive to the crowds. His, for him, success was just maintaining peace until he could hopefully get a transfer to someplace a little more glamorous than Jerusalem. And so when the chief priests bring Jesus, Pilate's wondering what he's going to do. He's wondering what is going on, and, and he talks to Jesus, and it says that Pilate is astonished because... Pilate is a man who has the authority of life or death over this guy, but rather than Jesus pleading for his life, rather than Jesus pleading his case, Jesus basically just refuses to say anything. And, uh, and so Pilate doesn't quite know what to do, because on the one hand, he wants to get along with, with the teachers of the law. He wants to, he wants to work with the crowds. He wants to maintain the peace, and yet they're asking him to... to execute somebody who he, he doesn't see what the issue is with that particular person. And then Pilate thinks he has a way out. A crowd gathers, and it was Pilate's tradition. This was probably something that, that Pilate just made up in order to maintain the peace. It was Pilate's, Pilate's tradition to uh, grant someone clemency, to grant someone pardon around the time of the Passover, just as a way of maintaining good relationships with with everybody. And so he says to the crowd, how about if I release to you today this one that they say is the king of the Jews? Seems harmless enough to me. Let me let this guy go. But the chief priests, the elders, the rulers of the law, they all, uh, they all, they all work together to incite the crowd against Jesus. And so the crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. And Look at the very last verse of the text. It says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, 
Pilate didn't want to have a, an angry mob on his hands, so he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So here's Pilate. He's the most powerful man in Jerusalem, but he's terrified of an unruly mob. You know, today, it's ironic that probably I think certainly of all the people who were ruling in Rome in the first century, no one is more famous than Pilate. I mean, here we are talking about him 2,000 years after his death. He figures prominently in, in all of the uh, gospel narratives, and he even, even gets honorable mention in the Apostles' Creed. And the reason they talked about Pilate, the reason he's, he's mentioned is because the early church and the, the framers of the Apostles' Creed were very concerned to make it clear to everybody that that the story of Jesus wasn't fiction, it wasn't a myth, it wasn't a fantasy, but it was actually something that took place in history. And the good thing about Pilate, he wasn't, he wasn't impressive, he wasn't, he wasn't accomplished, but he was somebody who you could look in the record books at Rome and see that he was an individual who served in Jerusalem at a certain time, and so it placed Jesus in history. So when the when, when the apostles wrote the story of, of Jesus' life, it was, and they mentioned Pilate, it was kind of like bringing up Chris Christie. And, well, it's not funny. <laughs> it was kind of like bringing up, you know, the former governor of New Jersey, and people would say, oh, yeah, we can look that. I, I, I saw the uh, list of the governors of New Jersey. He served from this time to this time, so that must be when all of these things happened. So he wanted to set Pilate, he wanted to set the, the events of Jesus' life in history. And so Pilate, ironically, is so famous today and is a historic figure only because he happened to be connected to Jesus. But what we see is that he's weak, he's insecure, he's manipulated by the Jewish leaders, he's bossed around the, by the crowd because he's a person with power, but absolutely no principle and no values. I think there's nothing darker than seeing someone who's got power but no principles, who's got power but no guiding star that they are working with, who, who sees the main goal of their life as holding on to power. That's what leads people to dark places, whether it's in their family, in their company, or in in our world today. All over the world you see examples of people who, who lead hundreds or thousands or even millions of people into very dark places just for the sake of holding on to their power. So even though he's got power, he's a picture of deep insecurity. I mean, think of the fear the guy lived with every, every day that, that, that this province that he was charged with governing might rebel against him. And all he wanted to do was hold on to his power. You know, the irony of life is once you get something, you spend most of your time worrying that you might lose it. You know, the higher you climb, all you think about is how much it will hurt if you fall from this place. So that's why Pilate is astonished. He's somewhat confused here that Jesus wouldn't play ball with him, that Jesus refused to recognize his power. And uh, the irony of Pilate's life is later he was the one who, 
who affirmed Jesus' status as the king of the Jews. He was the one who instructed that on the cross where Jesus hung, there would be a sign above his head that said, this one is the king of the Jews. So there's Pilate who shows us the problems with power. There's the, the Jewish leaders who show us how we hold on to a pathetic status quo. And then there's the crowd. Sometimes we're a part of the crowd. Sometimes we're the victim of the crowd. Remember Jesus on Palm Sunday. We just uh, read about it. What happens on Palm Sunday? Jesus enters into Jerusalem and everybody's cheering. Everybody's praising and they're singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody's excited to see Jesus there. And then seven days later, fewer than seven days later, another crowd, maybe some of the same people, are in the courtyard and the very one who they wave the palm branches at, now they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And so that, that's kind of a scary story. It tells us something about the affections of a crowd. One is that they're powerful. If you can learn how to harness the affections of a crowd, you can get your way. I mean, Pilate's the governor. He's got the whole force of the Roman Empire behind him, but he's scared of the crowd. And on the other hand, the rejection of the crowd is powerful as well. There's nothing more devastating than to have the crowd turn against you. I mean, here it was the rejection of the crowd that was the instrument that led to Jesus' death. You know, and, and this is important to, to remember in America, thankfully America is a democracy, but sometimes a democracy elevates the opinion of the crowd to the ultimate value. Uh, you know, and, and here we see how dangerous that can be and how easily a crowd can be led astray. The crowd here is rejecting the very one who wept over them, the one who would shortly give his life for them. Crowds are powerful, but they're not always right. Jesus' unjust death was caused by a crowd. Jesus the glory of Jesus is found in the fact that even though the crowd was cruel and destructive, Jesus gave himself for the crowd. So we see the crowd. And then finally, the most unsavory of all of these people, perhaps, is Barabbas, the person involved in the trade. Barabbas was a rebel. He was sort of a domestic terrorist. He was leading a group of rebels, and they did something, and... Someone was killed as a result, and, and Barabbas, perhaps as, as the leader of that group, was held in jail. He was on, on death row, as it were, waiting, waiting for the axe to fall. But it was a tradition that Pilate had, and this wasn't a broadly known tradition. They can't find much record of this outside of the New Testament. But Pilate, trying to keep the peace, had a tradition of letting someone go and... And so the crowds were there to ask Pilate to release Barabbas to them. And Pilate said, well, how about if I release this one who they call the king of the Jews? I heard he was a crowd favorite just a few days ago on Palm Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the crowds have completely turned on Jesus. And they say, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now think about this for a minute. This is kind of amazing. If you're Barabbas, this is working out pretty well. I mean, you're thinking that, that uh, this might be your very last day, but instead, the, the, 
it looks like a deal's going to be worked out and you're going from death row to freedom. But on the other hand, the crowd has just gone insane. They're exchanging one who raised the dead for a murderer. They're ch exchanging the prince of peace for a terrorist. They're exchanging the king of kings for a rebel. But that is what they chose. That's the picture of what the crowds preferred in this moment. In Acts 3.14, Peter is preaching to, to the very first sermon at Pentecost, and he sums up the, the conundrum of God's people this way. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, Jesus goes on to say. And, uh, you know, th this is a, an amazing picture, but a picture of what the cross means for all of us. I've, I've noticed something about myself, and maybe it's true of you as well. When, when you feel, when you've done something wrong, one of the ways you can avoid bearing the consequences of that is if, someone else gets punished for that. Maybe, you know, most of you if, you, if you have a little brother or a little sister, you've noticed how that, how that can work against you. Um, but, but it works in all of life. You know, some of you have experienced this on the job where something goes wrong at work and someone's head's got to roll, so they pick somebody, they fire that person, and then everybody else can kind of go on with uh, business as usual. Sometimes it happens in public life. There's a problem in, in a country, there's a problem in a nation, and they, they uh, throw one set of politicians out, they bring another set of politicians in, and the other set of pro politicians has the same problems, but, but for a couple of years they can just continue to blame their predecessors, right? Because so long as you can find someone else to take the blame, then you can get off scot-free. You, you know that if someone else is punished for something you do, it probably means you're not going to bear the consequences of that. It's just the way life works. And so one of our strongest urges, I think one of our ba basic instincts, is to justify ourselves. And if necessary, we justify ourselves by letting someone else take the blame. But the flip side of that is, I think one of the most troubling and most, if, if you've ever been in a situation, and if you have a little brother or a little sister you have, where you get blamed for something someone else did, and you know they're getting off and you're bearing the consequences, that's one of the most unpleasant things to experience, right? Because it's one thing to, to bear the punishment or, or to bear the consequences of something that you've done, but when you're getting blamed for something someone else did, when you're getting punished for something someone else did, that's, that, that's, that, that's worse. And I think it's because when that's, that's happening, it makes you doubt the whole, feel like the whole fabric of the universe is, is ripping, you know, because there is no justice. There is, it, it's just completely unfair. Uh, and, and that unfairness can just gobble up our souls in a way because there's nothing worse, I think, to be severely punished for something that you didn't do, that someone else did, and you know that other person is going off, going free. But the heart of the gospel is simply this. Understanding what Jesus did for us is simply to understand this, that what Jesus did for Barabbas on that day is actually what Jesus did for 
everybody who will believe in him. Jesus took Barabbas' place on death row so Barabbas could be free, but the gospel tells us that Jesus took all of our place under the wrath of God, forsaken by God, suffering on the cross so that we could be set free. Romans 3 puts it this way, For all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. The agreement Jesus had, the contract Jesus entered into with His Father was that He would take the punishment for the sins of everybody who would believe in him, even though he was innocent. He agreed to an exchange that was a really raw deal for him, where he was punished for our sins, and we received as a gift his righteousness. He agreed to be considered sin in our place so that we could be adopted as the children of God. He took the curse from God so that we could receive the blessing of God. That's the story of the work of Jesus. That's the story of the life of Jesus. And that, that doctrine, that, that event that we're celebrating here on Holy Week is, is the heart of the Christian hope. The very thing that we would resist the most, being punished for another person's sin, bearing the consequences for someone else's wrongdoing, is exactly what Jesus voluntarily agreed to do so that he could save your life. That, my friends, is the heart of the gospel. You know, the human life, I think our project, the, pro the human project for all of us is to figure out a way to justify ourselves. Sometimes we try to justify ourselves through our own strength by being popular, by being successful, by being beautiful, by being religious, by being right, righteous, or, or whatever it, it takes for us to do. But life gets hard, and inevitably our positive efforts to justify ourselves get messed up, and, and our own self-salvation project gets messed up. And then we go to the dark mode, which is, Rather than trying to justify ourselves through our own achievement, we start trying to justify ourselves by blaming other people for our problems. You ever done that? And so we start blaming our brothers and our sisters. We start blaming our parents or our children. We start blaming the government or our neighbors. We start blaming our bosses or our employees or, or our customers. We blame other races, we blame other nations, we justify ourselves, even in the midst of our pathetic circumstances, by putting the blame on someone else. But the gospel tells us, the gospel tells everyone who follows Jesus that there's no need to do that, because Jesus said, put the blame on me. The only justification you need is the justification you need because I died for you. You don't need to blame anyone else. You don't need to be angry at anybody else. You don't need to manipulate anybody else. You don't need to claim to be the victim of anybody else. You can simply trust in me. And, and when you do that, 
What that offers us is freedom from a pathetic status quo, freedom from just living a life that's about the struggle to preserve our power, freedom even from the whim of the crowd. The crowds will come and the crowds will go. One minute you're on top, the next minute they're trampling you under their feet. Instead, we can simply trust in him, rest in him, believe in him, and answer the question, how do you justify your existence? Say, well, I really can't except for one thing. Son of God laid down his life for me, and that is all I need. That's the hope that the great exchange offers to all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the generosity of Jesus, that he was willing to be blamed for our sin, that he was willing to be punished for our transgressions. I pray that for each of us here, as we're struggling to justify ourselves one way or another, I pray that you would help us to see how in the cross and through the sacrifice and suffering of Christ, we find our ultimate justification. Help us to rest in that. Help us to embrace that, we pray in his holy name. Amen.